The Queen's Jewish Link presents the Jewish Living Podcast, the show that examines the many facets of Orthodox Jewish life. Here's your host, Izzo Zwerin. When most people think of genetic issues in the Jewish community, the immediate thought goes to Tay-Sachs disease and the number of other genetic conditions organizations like J-Screen and Doya Sharm test for. These organizations are famous for testing prospective parents so as to minimize the spread of genetic diseases throughout the Jewish population. However, there are many genetic diseases that those organizations do not as of now test for. These are mostly conditions found in adults and, for now, are not part of the premarital genetic tests. However, that doesn't mean research isn't being conducted on them, and we were able to talk to someone who's all about disseminating information about genetic mutations. Hi, I'm Tamima Wildman Leibowitz, and I'm a genetic counselor at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Tamima and I will discuss genetic cancers in the Jewish community and the BRCA mutations, as well as some of the things you can do to help facilitate early detection. Mima, thank you so much for joining me this week. So let's start off with a little bit of a background about genetic counseling. Uh, what is a genetic counselor? So a genetic counselor is a healthcare professional who has special training um, in genetics, obviously, um, but also some psychosocial counseling training. And we basically integrate the medical and psychosocial implications of genetic conditions and genetic testing. And um, we also facilitate um, all those things coming together and educating patients about what it means to have a genetic syndrome and what management guidelines we recommend. Uh, we also provide um, resources to patients um, and support groups so that they can have continued support. Oh, all right. So uh, what does it take to become a genetic counselor. It's not one of those usual professions that we hear about. It's pretty uh, specialized. So what, how, does, how does one become a, a genetic counselor? Yeah, so it, it is, it's a smaller field, but it's um, becoming bigger because there is just so much need for genetic counselors these days as like the world is turning towards personalized medicine. There's just a lot more need for genetic counselors. So it's a small but growing, growing um, quickly. Um, in this field. So I have a undergraduate degree in biology um, and a, a master's degree to currently to your programs um, to get specialized training for genetic counseling. We've had on SD Rose from JScreen who deals with a lot of the pre-marital screening for, mm -hmm. for Jews. What's the difference between what JScreen does or what Dory Sharm does and what a genetic counselor does? Well, I mean, so those are organizations and they have genetic, well, at least JScreen has SD and a few other genetic counselors that work for them. Um, they're focused on testing people for the purposes of reproduction and to understand what the risks are for their children to have pretty severe um, lifelong illnesses. Um, in the setting that I work, I work in a, in a cancer hospital, so I'm um, seeing patients and I'm seeing families who have either cancer themselves or very strong family history of cancer. Um, we, we'll get into that a little bit in more detail. Um, and so we're really testing people for their own cancer risks and for their own management. It also helps us understand what the risks are for their family members so we can be um, on the side of prevention versus reacting to a cancer diagnosis and treating that. 
but mm. we try to prevent it as well. Okay, so are you, this is the Jewish Living Podcast, so are you focused mainly on the Jewish population or are you focused more broadly on, on cancer in general? So my specific position is in a general cancer hospital, so it's not uh, specific for the Jewish community, but being in New York and at one of the top cancer hospitals, I tend to see a lot of Jewish people. And I think just being part of the community, I am a resource, so people who know me or, or you know, people refer other people to me if they have questions or concerns that come up. Um, so I, I see myself as a resource in the community as well. Okay, so we're in a weird position in uh, in the country right now. So we've had a lot of de- of dealing with with COVID and some of the some of the racial tension that's been going on. So I appreciate you coming on and talking a little bit about a lighter topic, cancer. Um, so, <laughs> so let's get into because you, you you deal a lot with with the with the uh, hereditariness of of cancer. So let's talk about that first. Hereditary versus non-hereditary. Non-hereditary acquired, what, I don't know what the other, what would it would be if you are not getting a hereditary version, but what's the right. difference between that? What are the markers that we're looking for to know if so, it's hereditary or not hereditary? Yeah, so, um, you know, when we see patients and we're assessing to see if there's some sort of uh, hereditary cause to their cancer, one thing we have to think about is that most cancers are actually not hereditary. Um, but the reason why this is, so important for the Jewish communities because um, especially in the setting of breast cancer, which is a very common cancer women, but there's a much higher rate of it being hereditary in the Jewish community, specifically in Ashkenazi Jewish individuals. Um, So only about 10 to 15% overall of cancer is hereditary. The rest of it is, you know, there could be some familial link, meaning it's something that's running in the family, but we don't have a specific genetic marker for it. Um, but the vast majority of the time is just something that's kind of sporadic. You know, we don't know exactly how to quantify environmental risk or um, other like um, personal risk factors like smoking and obesity and things like that. Um, so there's so many different causes and, and reasons why people get cancer. And it's hard to quantify things that are not specifically linked. But um, most of the time, these things are kind of random. Okay. Are there any diseases, cancer specifically, that are more prevalent in the Jewish community? And you could also talk about if there's a difference between the Ashkenazi and Sephardic communities as well. So it's not necessarily, my understanding is that it's not necessarily that the cancer rates are higher, but there's a higher rate of the cancers that develop being caused by a genetic mutation running in a family in people who are Ashkenazi Jewish. And that, 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 same, that same trend does not appear in the Sephardic community? No. Okay, it's a, the Ashkenazi Jewish um, genome is a very specific um, set of genes and markers that we have, which is why, you know, when you do things like um, what people are familiar with with carrier screening before a couple gets engaged or has kids, um, you know, things like taste axles are very specific to Ashkenazi Jewish individuals, although other people can have it too, but the rates are much higher in Ashkenazi Jewish people because the, it's a very specific set of genes that we have. Okay. So in a previous presentation that you gave that I happened to see, you said that while cancer isn't necessarily more prevalent in the Jewish populations, genetic cancer is. Um, just didn't understand the explanation you gave as to why. Can you explain why genetic cancer is more prevalent in Jewish populations than it is in uh, other populations? So, you know, there are different um, populations where this phenomenon happens, um, but 
Um, like I mentioned, the Ashkenazi Jewish genes are a distinct ethnicity. Um, and we have gone through a lot of different episodes in history that increase the rate of mutations in our population. So for example, there's a population of, you know, let's say 100 people, and then there's a pogrom or people migrate, they're running away from the pogroms and whatever it is, and you lose some of that population. So people are killed. So now you, from a um, population of 100, you're down to 50. And if one of those people had a mutation, so it was previously one in 100, now it's one in 50. Mm. So that's how the rate gets so much higher. Um, and so with some of these genes that we know about, there's actually a rate of one in 40 in the Ashkenazi Jewish population um, for certain mutations that we call founder mutations where one person had it and then they go repopulate. And so now that you have this founder mutation that becomes a lot more prevalent. Okay. So just, just, just cause the math kind of messes with my head a little bit. Um, but wouldn't that also be true the other way? If you had one in a hundred and then you lost 50, maybe that one would have been lost in the hundred as well. So we're talking about, I mean, obviously we're not only talking about a hundred people and one, it's a lot larger population in, in European, European Jewish history. So wouldn't that potentially have canceled out that mathematical issue? Additionally, if it's a hundred people and there's two in the community and you could lose one, you could lose, you could lose both. You could lose neither. I, I, right. Statistically, just, just from a statistical perspective, I'm not sure if this is something that's up your alley. I mean, but... I'm not a statistician, but um, <laughs> meaning the way, the, the, when they went back and they said, why do we see this mutation so prevalent? That was the explanation. Okay. So there could have been other mutations that were lost, but we wouldn't necessarily know about them because right. some of the things are from like the Middle Ages. Ah, okay. All right. So you, you mentioned uh, about these genetic mutations. I think that you mentioned that in your speech that I saw, two of the common ones are BRCA1 and BRCA2. If you can talk to us about what those are. So BRCA1 and BRCA2 are two different genes that work similarly. Um, they are the most common causes of hereditary breast and ovarian cancer primarily, but if there's a mutation in these genes, that can also cause increased risks for pancreatic cancer in men and women, male breast cancer, and also for men to develop uh, prostate cancer that tends to be more aggressive. And just to clarify something, um, when we are talking about these cancer risks, we're talking about mutations or changes within these genes. So all of our genes, we have 20,000 of them, have a specific spelling to them. And what we look for when we do genetic testing is any changes or like spelling mistakes in the genes. Um, so there are three specific changes in the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes that are called founder mutations um, in the Ashkenazi Jewish population. So this is what we're referring to. You mentioned that it's, it's breast and ovarian cancer. You did mention a little bit about prostate cancer and how men can get breast cancer in theory. Uh, it's rarer, but it, it can happen. And it's important to note that even though these are breast and ovarian cancer, men still can be susceptible to this gene. If not, if not for them, they can pass it down as well, correct? Right, both of those things. So it, like the traditionally these genes, the syndrome that they called it was hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome, um, which is a little, 
it's a misnomer because like you just mentioned, there are risks for men, but the, the high risks are predominantly breast and ovarian cancer. Um, but we see these other cancers at a higher rate in people with these mutations. And, and the, the male risks are particularly with BRCA2, but we can see them with BRCA1 as well. Okay. Is the difference between the two something very technical that I wouldn't understand, or is that something you could explain? They're just two different genes. So the cancer okay. is sort of slightly different, but okay. uh, we treat them the same essentially. All right. So we also mentioned earlier that there's a difference between how you operate versus how um, Dory Charm and J-Screen operate. Is this something that theoretically could be tested for before marriage? If so, do we do it? And if not, why not? You know, we don't test children for these types of genes because we don't think that kids are at risk to develop these types of cancers. There are certain ages where we see the risks go up, and that's in adulthood. For BRCA1 and BRCA2, um, we do start screening women around age 25 um, for breast cancer with specialized imaging. Um, So that's pretty young, um, and not all women are married at that point. Um, You know, where I work, our mindset is kind of like there's no reason to be tested before age 25 unless someone wants to know, or if they're going to be using it for reproductive purposes to prevent passing it down, or if there's other risks involved, and, and we can talk right. about well, that. Right. Well, I was going to say that the whole point of the, the uh, J. Screen Dory Sharm is to prevent passing these things down. It sounds like something that if both sides have is an increased risk of a child having it. There's a whole reason that Dory Sharm and, and J-Screen exist to prevent these types of, of diseases to be, or, or in this case, a genetic mutation to be passed down. I'm not, I'm not advocating to you as a genetic counselor that you should be the one on the forefront of getting this done. But there, I remember when we spoke um, with SD Rose that there are potentially other issues with over-screening for diseases that may or may not come to fruition. Is this one of those things? So I, there's like a few parts to answer this question. So number one, the inheritance of it is different than most of the conditions that they're screening for um, in, in terms of reproductive carrier screening. So in the most of the conditions that Dory Sharm, well, probably all the ones that Dory Sharm are testing for, and in most of them that J-Screen are testing for, they're all recessive conditions where um, an individual carries a mutation on one copy of their gene and the other copy of their gene is normal. And they're a carrier, but the vast majority of the time, they're not going to exhibit any symptoms or have any risks for their own health. Um, so it's really purely for the, uh, to understand more about the genetic health of, of their future children. When it comes to BRCA, the inheritance is different. It's a dominant condition, meaning you only have to have a mutation on one copy of your gene in order to have this increased risk to develop certain types of cancer. So first of all, the the inheritance of it is different, which makes it kind of a little bit of a different conversation because you're not just testing for purposes of your child, you're also testing for purposes of understanding your own risks, which is uh, like a heavier burden, um, I would say, for people, especially younger people. Um, And so one of the reasons why I said we don't necessarily test people before they are going to be doing anything about this for their own health is because, especially for people who are in their younger 20s, it's, it's a, it can be very emotionally challenging to have this information, especially if you can't do anything about it. Um, and, and like just kind of the timing of it is not 
great. Um, there are definitely people who want to get tested for it before marriage, and that's fine. But I think in the Jewish community, that also brings up a lot of questions about shidduchim and what do you have to disclose and what do you not disclose. Um, I mean, I would say in a lot of my from patients, that's a, a very strong concern, especially in people who are maybe more yeshivish or you know going through the shidduch system. So I think that like there's different purposes of the type of testing and I, especially in the setting of people who are kind of like, okay, we're going to get engaged. Let's do the genetic testing to see if our kids would be at risk as the last check thing on the checklist before we get engaged, like testing for BRCA is not really the right, it's not really the right setting for that. Now we're focusing a lot on, on BRCA one and two. Um, there are absolutely, or obviously other genetic mutations out there. Some are more common than others. How easy is it to find out if you have one? How easy is it for research to exist to help deal with these mutations? And what do you do as a genetic counselor to make yourself knowledgeable on the new things that are coming out every day, every week? So, um, you know, we talk about BRCA a lot because that is the most common that applies to the Jewish community, I guess I would say. Um, it is a pretty common thing that we see in the Jewish community. Again, it's one in 40. So that's like pretty high. It's two and a half percent of Ashkenazi Jews, um, mm. half of whom don't even know that they have a mutation. So that's the most common thing. And that's why we've been talking and focusing on that. There, there's another condition called Lynch syndrome, which is a colon and uterine cancer predisposition syndrome, among other cancers. But those are the most common. Um, that's actually... We think it's one of the most common cancer genetic syndromes. Um, so, you know, when we see patients, when, um, and I'm evaluating, you know, there's a lot of questions we ask about ages of onset and who in the family has been affected. You know, are there multiple generations affected with the same or related cancers? Um, we look for rare cancers, and there's also sometimes some testing that's done on tumors that can help us understand more about whether there's any hereditary cause for it. Um, so that's one, those are like the main things that we assess for because colon cancer and breast cancer are also pretty common cancers that we see in the population. Um, in terms of more rare things, so, you know, there are lots of different, again, like I mentioned, there's 20,000 different genes. Some of them are syndromes where we can see other types of health issues or skin findings or other physical things that also um, have cancer risks. Or, you know, if we just see a lot of the same or related cancers in a family, sometimes that triggers um, patients to be referred to us for a genetic workup. So it really depends on what you're thinking about, what types of cancers. Um, but most of the time when it's the same type of cancer in the family, uh, you know, not like, oh, my uncle had lung cancer, my other aunt had leukemia, and my mother had breast cancer. Like those are not necessarily things that go together. Um, which people may not know, but a genetic counselor would know. Um, right. Whereas if you have, you know, six family members at the same exact, you know, ALL, acute lymphoid leukemia, like then that's something that's more concerning. Right. Um, and I am grateful um, that I work in a, in a great place with a lot of ongoing research where we do testing. Um, and, and we do research on a lot of these genes that are less known and, and more rare. Um, and that's also how I learn about these things because uh, I work with the doctors who are publishing the papers. And so um, I'm very lucky that I just kind of get to absorb it um, and get notified when there are new publications coming out. 
um, and we do a lot of that, a lot of the research. Okay, so let's talk about the preventative measures. Um, first, let's talk about primary prevention. So we're talking about screenings and and tests like that. So if you could talk a little bit about uh, the importance of those things and how often, early and often, people should start doing that. So again, it depends on what condition you're talking about. So if we're focusing on BRCA, um, there, and then there's also like two different routes. So one is early detection, which is what you use use screening methodologies for. And then the other side of it is prevention, which is why you would do like preventative surgeries or sometimes take medication. So in the setting of BRCA, we generally start screening women from age 25 with breast MRIs. At age 30, we add in mammograms and those are done every year. So um, once a woman is age 30, if she already knows she has a BRCA mutation or knows that there's one in her family and she hasn't been tested yet, um, then we would do like an MRI and six months later do a mammogram. So they have screening pretty often. Or women have the option of prevention where they can have bilateral mastectomies and remove both breasts um, before there's any um, risk of, or any known cancer diagnosis to prevent that from happening. It's a pretty drastic thing. And, and a lot of times when people um, kind of hear about BRCA and it's mentioned as an option, it's kind of like, yeah, I'll just have a mastectomy, whatever, and reconstruction. But like, it's, it is a much more complicated process than that. Um, and it's not something that should be taken lightly. Um, and it, it's a personal decision whether somebody wants to do screening versus having a big surgery like that. And um, also there's no specific timing that we recommend it because it is a personal choice. Um, so there are people that I've seen that said, oh, my doctor said I have to have a, my, a, a surgery, I have to have a mastectomy. Um, and even if someone has cancer, um, unless there's a, a cancer-related reason to do that, if it's just because of a genetic mutation, it's not a obligatory. It's not mandatory. Um, it's really a person's own de decision how they want to manage that risk. In some cases, especially in women who've already gone through menopause, um, there can be options of also taking some medications to help reduce the risk of, cancer, of breast cancer from occurring. Um, in terms of the ovaries, unfortunately, we don't have great screening. So um, traditionally, they used to do a blood test called CA125 and um, an ultrasound of the ovaries. Um, and they did that for many, many years until it was really proven that it was not effective in, cancer, in catching ovarian cancer at an early stage. And the, the symptoms of ovarian cancer, like bloating and feeling full, um, pain, things like that are kind of broad um, and, and hard. Right, that could to, be a lot of different things. Yeah, and sometimes they're just things that women experience anyways as a normal life. Right. Um, so it's very hard to pinpoint. And um, so it's very, very hard just to catch ovarian cancer at a early stage. And because of that, the recommendations are that women who have these mutations actually have their ovaries removed, typically around age 40 or when they're finished having children. Um, so that's much younger than when a woman is uh, going through menopause. Um, and so that comes with its own risks and side effects as well. But that is um, very much a medical recommendation that we give people, uh, women who have the BRCA1 or 2 gene mutations. I would then say, what about men? As, speaking as a man myself. Exactly. Um, right where I was going. Okay. 
So for men, um, obviously they don't have a lot of breast tissue and they don't have ovaries. Um, we mentioned that men can get breast cancer. So we tell men to do self breast exams from age 35. Generally the cancer, the breast cancer for men and the prostate cancer too, they don't happen at very young ages like we can sometimes see with BRCA one and two. Um, so we don't start so much younger, but we tell men to definitely do self breast exams, just feel the breast tissue. Um, in the armpit um, area for any lumps, bumps, bleeding, bruising, discharge from the nipple or the nipple inverting. Um, and some men, if they have a lot of breast tissue, will have mammograms. But the guidelines are kind of like consider a mammogram if you have a BRC2 mutation in your man. They're not very specific. Um, so I think it's kind of um, individual. It depends on whether they actually get any screening done. It depends, you know, if there's a lot of breast tissue there for a man or not. Um, you just can't physically do it for everybody. And then in terms of prostate cancer screening, which kind of in the general population has is a little bit um, controversial, but in the men who have a genetic predisposition for it, we certainly recommend that they start um, a little bit earlier at age 40, and that's a blood test and a physical exam that's done by a, a physician. And um, we do that every year. Are there any, just because of the title of our podcast, are there any increased measures for specifically for the Jewish population? Because it seems like all things that everybody should be doing throughout the course of their lives, like the, the annual screenings after 30 for women, 35 for men, all of those things. Is there anything that's specific to the Jewish population, not necessarily people who have tested positive for BRCA, anything else? Well, I think in the Jewish community, in some parts of the Jewish community, women and men don't get the screenings that are recommended for the general population. So if a woman does not have a BRC mutation and has no family history of breast or ovarian cancer, she still needs to be getting mammograms every year starting age 40. Um, men and women, they all need to be getting colonoscopies every five to 10 years starting at age 50, regardless of their family history. And if they have family history, then more often than that, and maybe younger. Um, so that's the only thing I would say is just the compliance with the population guidelines is, could be a specific issue in the Jewish community, which it might be in other communities too. Um, but those recommendations I was going through are specific for people who have a mutation. Now, the other part of it is people who have a family history but don't have an identified mutation. They still may need some increased screening, and that's why it's important to speak to their physician or genetic counselor about what they should be doing. Um, and then one other thing I, I think to point out is just that people um, don't necessarily know that they're at risk for a BRC mutation. So we kind of talked about how it is pretty common. And so there's been some studies, um, and I think they're doing similar studies in Israel. I forget exactly where it stands now, where they're actually talking about testing all Ashkenazi Jews regardless if there's a family history of cancer or not. So I mentioned that like 50% of people who carry BRC mutations are not aware of it. Um, so either they don't have family history or they don't realize that their family history is significant for it, or you know, they're, all their great aunts and uncles were killed in the Holocaust, so they just don't know that there, that there could have been a family history of cancer. Right. So um, you know, the, the guidelines have actually changed to say that anyone of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry could consider getting tested for BRCA. Um, whether your insurance will cover it or not at this point 
uh, not very clear, but that might will, will probably be changing over the next five to 10 years. So I wanted to touch on one thing that you said and then bring up one other area. The first thing that I wanted to touch on is that you mentioned that there's a family, it could be a, fam, a familial history, but they don't, they haven't been diagnosed with any specific genetic condition. My thought immediately was just because they haven't been diagnosed with one yet, doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It just means possibly that we haven't discovered what that mutation is yet since we're coming out with a lot of research constantly. It's possible that there is this mutation, just we don't know what it is. Is, is that accurate? Am I making that up? I think, so there's two different things there. So number one, what I was saying is that, you know, there's been a lot of studies. So specifically, there was a study in Israel um, about six years ago or so, um, where they tested men. I think some men, I think, had family members with, with breast cancer and some did not, I believe. And they found that equal amounts of the men essentially had, had these mutations. Um, so that basically shows that, you know, even if you don't have a family history, you still have that one in 40 or two and a half percent risk if you're Ashkenazi Jewish to carry one of these BRC mutations. Hmm. So you may not know that you have it because you may not have family history, but you still have it and you still have the cancer risks. Um, so that was number one, what I was trying to say. What you're saying is that, um, you know, for some families, there's a very strong family history of cancer or specific cancers that look like they're being caused by something in, in one of the genes and we just haven't discovered it yet, right? So, you know, 20 years ago, um, we were only testing people with strong family histories of breast and ovarian cancer for BRCA. But now we do these really, we, we do panels. Basically, we test many genes at one time. So where I work, we test for like seven to eight genes generally for breast and ovarian cancer. Um, other places, they do these really, really big panels, like 80 different genes. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of differences in what different people, different um, hospitals or, or healthcare providers test for, but there, there's a lot more that we know now in terms of cancer risks and what genes can be causing it than we did 20 years ago. So research is always changing. Um, and if there's a very strong family history, that's why we still give recommendations for people to perhaps have more screening or start at a younger age because... Um, they may still have this familial risk or there could be some genetic risk that we just have not identified. So the one thing that I wanted to bring up is that if somebody gets a test for a BRCA, generally two options, positive, negative, positive. We know what that means. Negative, we already spoke about that doesn't necessarily mean you can't get other cancers. And it doesn't mean you can't get can the same cancers that don't necessarily uh, relate Correct. exactly to the, the, the mutation. Um, but I did see that you mentioned in the other in your presentation an unknown test result. So if you could talk a little bit about what that means, yeah. how does an unknown test result even happen? So it's not that it's an unknown test result. The the type of what well, we call those variants of unknown significance. So it's not okay. that the the result is unknown. It's that we don't know what what the result means. Um, so. Just to take a step back, so when we're talking about the Ashkenazi Jewish mutations in BRCA1 and 2, uh, most often patients will be tested for those first if they're Ashkenazi Jewish, and that's really a yes or no, either positive or negative. We see it or we don't. But when we do something called sequencing of the genes, where we look at the sentence of the gene letter by letter, look for any changes, we can get either positive, we find a, a known 
change that is harmful or negative, we don't see anything, or whatever we do see we know is benign because there's been enough studies done. And this third type of result that we call a VUS or a variant of uncertain significance um, means that we find a change or a variation or an alteration in the gene. So some sort of spelling change that is different than our, our typical spelling, but we don't know whether it's actually disease causing or if it's benign. Now, those things are just basically a, a lack of scientific data. We haven't studied enough people with this particular change. There's not enough literature on it. Um, we just don't have enough um, data to, to make a, a call about its interpretation or its classification. Um, and so what we tell patients with those things, uh, those types of results are, is basically to keep in contact with us um, because these things do change as more people are tested and more research is done, um, those uh, variants can be updated to be either harmful or benign. 90% of the time, they end up being benign. Um, so we don't give recommendations based on them. We tell people to, you know, basically continue as per their family history, whatever their family history is, we give recommendations. But we would never tell someone to have a surgery based on this type of um, uncertain result. Okay, let's move on to secondary treatment options. So primary is, is, a, is a prevention. Secondary, they've already been diagnosed with the cancer. What are the, the management plans? I mean, obviously it's going to be different based on individual things, but what are we talking about on a broader spectrum of understanding of what there are, the, are the different types of measures that we take? So, um, you know, when someone's diagnosed with a cancer, it, it depends on what cancer it is, type right. of cancer. Um, Usually patients will be treated just based on the cancer itself. So how large the tumor is, where it's located, um, what, you know, so therefore what type of um, surgical options they have. If it's spread to the lymph node, do they need to have chemo first before they have a surgery or after? Um, so most of those decisions are based just on the cancer itself. Um, but sometimes, and especially in the settings of metastatic cancer, where it's already kind of spread through the body, there are specific drugs that can be used in the setting of a person with a genetic mutation, either in their tumor or something that they're born with. Tumors often have mutations in them, um, but sometimes um, they aren't, there aren't necessarily things that we're born with. So a woman can have a BRCA mutation in her breast cancer that's not actually something that she's born with, or she can have a BRCA mutation in her whole body, which would include the tumor as well. And so there are a specific class of drugs that can be used to treat that. Um, and also in the case of ovarian cancer and pancreatic cancer, um, with this other syndrome called Lynch syndrome, um, we often will use immunotherapy um, for patients with metastatic cancers related to Lynch syndrome. Um, they tend to work really well. So, you know, it, it does allow for us to do targeted therapy. And it's not just isolated to those two syndromes. There are other genes also that sometimes are, it's an option. And there's a lot of ongoing research there too. All right. So speaking of ongoing research, I know that there, obviously there's always more studies going on in terms of genetics. But if you could talk about the before study, uh, first of all, what is it? And if there's any chance of joining such a study or a next, another, another study that might be coming down the down the pike. Yeah, so the B4 study is, um, it stands for BRCA Founder Outreach Study. Um, so basically it was a, it's, it is a multi-center study. Um, the 
main sites that we are that are doing it uh, well four cities were involved so new york city through a memorial sloan kettering boston um, through dana farber and i don't remember the other hospital um, in la and in philadelphia um, so we basically had a study that was going on for about two years i think we had enrollment open where we tested people who had at least one Ashkenazi Jewish grandparent for these three common BRC mutations. Um, and it was free. So people could just sign up and get tested. A lot, it happened to be that a lot of people who did it had mutations in their families. And I think there was a high number, like a higher number of men. So it was just men who never bothered to get tested or for some mm -hmm. reason they never got tested, but they knew about a mutation in their family. So that, it was a really interesting study and, and um, it was, there was a lot of different aspects to it, but um, one of the main goals was how to get people um, to enroll. So we, we, there was a lot of efforts to do community, um, to reach out to people through the community. So not through their medical providers, but through their rabbis or community leaders. Um, didn't really take off. <laughs> they, they weren't really so interested, um, which was just kind of like interesting to see and to hear mm -hmm. and to, um, you know, they sent out, they had like Facebook ads and they had um, other types of email blasts that they would send out and it didn't really get people. But then when they had the, um, when they had the Federation send out an email that actually mm -hmm. a lot of people signed up through that. Um, so it was very interesting in a lot of different ways. Um, it, it, we closed the study to accrual in March of this year. Um, and we are currently fundraising and planning for the next phase of the study. So the first phase was a we call the pilot program. Basically, it was only open in four, four cities in the surrounding areas um, and had this, we wanted 4,000 people to be enrolled. So we met those goals. Um, and now we're planning for the next part of it, which will, we're still kind of figuring out what that will be, um, but making it easier. So not having patients, people need to do blood, but we'll do saliva and, um, you know, figuring out if it's just going to be for the Ashkenazi Jewish mutations or if there's going to be options for more expanded testing for people who need it. Um, so it's kind of still in development, not sure when it will reopen, but you can always go to the website b4study.com. Hold on, let me check it. B4 is B-F-O-R, just so people are who are looking for it. So on the website, there's somewhere where you can um, sign up for updates for to know to um, find out when it's reopening for the next okay. phase. Um, so there's a place to do that, I, I believe, when it will reopen. Yeah, so it's b4, B-F-O-R, study.com. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not the main genetic counselor on it. I have a wonderful colleague who is really great and has been like running the show for it. Um, but I do have some participation. <laughs> okay, so I'm I'm looking at this list so of of hospitals that are involved with this. So you you mentioned them. It's uh it's University of Pennsylvania. It's Penn. It's yeah. uh, Beth Israel in Boston. It's uh, and Dana, Dana Farber. Farber. There's it's, two different doctors. Yeah. Right. It's Sloan in New York, and it's Cal in Los Angeles. Are those the primary cancer hospitals 
in the country? Are there other ones that are out there for, I'm just asking for listeners that might be elsewhere in the country because you have a lot, a lot of yeah. representation here on the coasts, Philadelphia, Boston, Los Angeles, New York, uh, anywhere in the middle of the country. I'm assuming the Mayo Clinic is probably a good place that has that. I mean, there's, of- a, there's a lot of different places that have um, genetics. I think these are like some of the top cancer genetic doctors. So the, the different, you know, um, institutions that are listed are based off the physician who's one of our primary investigators. Um, There's another page on the website you can look at to see who it is. But those are, uh, so I would say that our physicians are probably some of the top cancer geneticists out there, but there are certainly a lot of other um, good places for cancer treatment. I mean, MD Anderson in Texas is a cancer hospital Mm -hmm. as well. Um, Mayo Clinic, I'm sure, I don't, uh, they also have like one of the, work with another one of their geneticists on a different project. Um, and I think also for the purposes of the study, it was focused on places where there was a lot big Jewish community. So mm, because it was ah. focusing on people who are Ashkenazi Jewish. So in, in that regard, is there a place in Israel that is uh, partnered with this or is that a, that is well, a working? That might be something in the works possibly. I don't know where it stands to be honest, but they, um, there are some people there that are working on similar things. Um, Dr. Efrat Levi Lahad is one of those physicians. I know works closely with Dr. Offit, who's the head of our genetics department. Um, I mean, sorry, there's, there's a whole bunch of places in Israel where they do this type of thing. I'm sorry, Sadek has a huge department for it, I think. But in general, I'll say that if someone is not in one of these areas or at one of these institutions, then they're looking for a genetic counselor or they need some um, input on, on whether the cancer in their family is hereditary. Um, you can go to the National Genetic Counselors um, website, nsgc.org, um, and there's a place where you can search for a genetic counselor in your area, and you can click off what kind of specialties, whether it's cancer or, or preconception or prenatal. Um, you can choose what you're looking for and find the genetic counselors in your area. Great. And we'll provide links to all of these uh, sites in at the show notes and on all of our social media pages. Is there any place that uh, on social media that uh, your program is uh, is uh, findable or that they, they do they run a Twitter account or Instagram account type of a thing? Um, I mean, we have like a genetics page on the Memorial Sloan Kettering website that we've recently updated. Um, and then the, I mean, the before study website is a great resource. Um, we do have an Instagram account that I run. It's not so active since our accrual is is closed right now, um, yeah. but you can look at it, um, <laughs> as well as Facebook and Twitter. I believe we have Twitter page as well. All right. We'll try to link to those on each individual platform. I have a more of a personal question because we started on the personal side. I, I never get to ask this question because the people that I have interviewed in the past, they're not in as much of a heavy field as this is. Does having to deal with this type of thing weigh on you outside of your job do, do, do these things have do you feel these things having an effect on you that you're dealing with the cancer patients and the genetic counseling part of it so much does it as i i personally feel like a big weight on my shoulders right now just talking about it for the last like hour i can't imagine what it would be like for somebody who does this on a day in day out basis so it's funny i do get that question um from time to time um, you know, most of the time we're actually giving people good news that their test results are negative. Um, and so that, that is a good feeling. Um, you know, there are definitely some, some stories and some patients that I think back to just because their situation or their story was kind of, um, sad or difficult. Um, 
But I would say the vast majority of the time it's actually because people, again, only 10 to 15% of cancer is caused by these mutations. So most of the time we're given good news that people are testing negative, um, which people I think find a lot of relief. Um, and then, you know, other times, even if we're giving bad, quote unquote, bad news that someone tested positive, you know, we're, we're giving them an opportunity to feel empowered and make decisions based off of that or for their family members to make decisions where they can really be changing the course of their life and, and um, you know, then we have some role in, in saving them, essentially. Wow. All right. I was a more positive outlook on this than I, than I was anticipating. I'm glad, I'm glad that it is that way. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us before I let you go? You know, I think there's a lot more to say in this topic that we didn't get to cover in an hour. Um, well, yeah. Um, but, you know, so I think just um, for people to know that there are resources out there, I mean, I'm happy to answer questions that people have, um, but there, there are resources. Um, you know, this is something that we don't talk about so much in our community, although I think more and more it is something that comes up. Um, but I think often also takes the back burner. People just kind of want to bury their head in the sand. So I think just taking time for people, if they kind of relate to this and think, oh, maybe I need to go get tested, you know, taking the time to think about it. Also knowing that meeting with a genetic counselor is not a commitment for testing. Um, you know, we are here to talk to people about why and why they shouldn't get tested and whether it's really the right decision or what the right timing is for them. Um, so it's not, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, why should I get tested? Or I don't want to know, but it's not that simple. Come find out the information, see what applies to you, and then make an educated decision about if and when you should get testing done. So you open the door to people uh, reaching out to you. Where can people reach out to you? Um, I guess they can email me. <laughs> um, although I won't wanna, be available. Do you, do you want to drop your email on the podcast or... Do you want to have people reach out to me directly and then I can put them in touch with you? I mean, how many people do you think will actually reach out? 10,000 people. No, I have no idea. It's up to you. Either, either way. I All guess right. I can contact you. All right. If you need to contact Tamima, you can reach out to me and I will provide you with her contact information. All right. Tamima Wildman-Liebowitz, thank you so much for joining us this week. And uh, this was really eye-opening, uh, some of these things that I really had no clue about. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. My thanks to Tamima Wildman-Lebowitz for coming on to discuss hereditary cancers this week. If you're interested in learning more about genetic diseases and the testing that goes into it, check out episode 12, The Next Generation of Genetic Testing with Esty Rose of JScreen, or episode 21, Raising a Child with Genetic and Chronic Conditions. I think you'll find both episodes have their own unique take on these areas of medicine. Or, if you want to wait until our next episode drops to hear the dulcet sounds of my voice, that's okay as well. Until next time, as always, Cold Oath. The Jewish Living Podcast is produced by Sorelli Pikus. Our theme song is The Band by A.B. Rottenberg from Journeys 4. You can email the show at jewishlivingpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at jewish underscore living. The Jewish Living Podcast is recorded in conjunction with the Queen's Jewish Link.